Well, I wanted to ask uh, you to be praying for me this week. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, I'm going to get on a flight with my son, Zach, our oldest son, and uh, we're going to go to Singapore together. And I got invited to uh, go back to that church that I, Kelly and I went to about a year ago to do a, a youth camp. Uh, they've asked me now to come back and do their family camp uh, and preach to their entire church for a week. And, uh, and so uh, they asked me to, to uh, preach on the book of Esther. And so I get to preach 10 times during the week uh, and just exposit the book of Esther. And um, so uh, really covet your prayers as we travel. Um, obviously, this is not... Uh, uh, in light of what's going on in the world, it's not the, uh, the, the funnest thing to do, get on a plane and, and fly through Russia of all places, because that's how the flight goes. Uh, direct flight from Houston to Singapore goes through Moscow. So you can pray uh, that, that uh, we make it through and back, right? But um, anyway, we're trusting the Lord in that. We're looking forward to a neat opportunity. I'm personally very grateful that Zach is able to come uh, and uh, join, join me in this trip. This is the first time we've ever been on a a ministry trip together, if you will, with uh, one of my children, and this church is very generous. They wanted to uh, provide a second ticket for somebody to come. They said, bring Kelly, bring one of your kids, bring somebody from the church, and so uh, we're just excited that it's worked out that Zach can come, and looking forward to having that that one-on-one time for the next 10 days. I haven't told him yet that uh, he's not going to be able to use his cell phone, because I'm not about to pay international fees for that. So, um, not sure how that's going to work. I'll make for some good conversations. Like we'll actually get to talk for a change, right? And uh, instead of texting one another or uh, what we normally do, right? But um, we really do um, appreciate your prayers uh, for that that ministry and that opportunity as well to spend time as father and son together. Um, but in light of that, I've been getting my heart and mind uh, geared up uh, to teach through the book of Esther and. Some of you know I taught um, that, I think it was the first series I did when we started our Wednesday night service, The Bridge, uh, a number of years ago, and um, the, the first book that the Lord laid on my heart to do was the book of Esther, and just a fascinating uh, book of the Bible, uh, one of my personal favorite stories uh, of all time. And so I wanted to share with you some things this morning that I, I, I trust will be an encouragement to you by way of an overview uh, of the book of Esther, um, and, and just really zeroing in on the main lesson, the main point, the reason why I think the book of Esther is in the Bible. Why did God put it there? Why did the Spirit inspire uh, the author to write this book and to record this account of, of, of this, this young lady called es- named Esther? Uh, so what? Uh, why should that make an impact in our life today? Well, Hopefully you'll leave here today being overwhelmed by the practicality of this Old Testament book we call Esther. Um, I want to read, as we begin, one of my favorite stories. Some of you may have heard this story before. Uh, It goes like this. The only survivor of a shipwreck was washed up on a small uninhabited island. He prayed fervently for God to rescue him. Every day he scanned the horizon for help, but none seemed forthcoming. Exhausted, he eventually managed to build a little hut out of driftwood to protect himself from the elements and to store what he had salvaged from the wreckage. One day, after scavenging for food, he arrived home to find his little hut in flames with smoke rolling up into the sky. He felt the worst had happened and that everything was lost. He was overwhelmed with grief and despair. He cried out angrily to God, how could you do this to me? And that night he fell asleep on the open beach having abandoned 
all hope. Early the next day, he was awakened by the sound of a ship approaching the island. It had come to rescue him. And the man asked the rescuers, how in the world did you know I was here? And they replied, we saw your smoke signal. Did you get it? Okay, there wasn't as big a reaction as I expected. Okay, you're like, did I, did I tell that story wrong? Did I miss something? Is it, you did, I love that story because it is a great reminder to me that whenever I feel like my hut's on fire, and, and you have those moments, right, when your hut's on fire, uh, and rather than being discouraged and, and giving up uh, hope, uh, I need to trust that God will somehow cause that bad situation that I'm in to work out for good. Romans 8.28, God works all things for good to those who are called to those who love him are called according to his purpose. And uh, we, we talked about this last week uh, with that quote from Spurgeon that, that there's never any ill that comes upon uh, the Christian. Uh, it's only good in mysterious form. And um, that is really the, the, the theme of the book of Esther which is another story that always reminds me to trust God when, when I find myself in some kind of disheartening or frustrating or troubling or threatening situation, um, is this Old Testament book of Esther. I mean, talk about your hut being on fire. God's people were faced with this vicious plot that threatened to wipe them out. If you're not familiar with the book of Esther, let me just... Uh, tell you a little bit about it. It's really a record of God's providential preservation of the exiled Jews who remained in Persia after King Cyrus had conquered Babylon and uh, declared that the Jews could go back to their homeland after their 70 years of captivity. However, despite Cyrus's decree and the urging of the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah, the majority of the Jews chose to stay in Persia Rather than to endure the rigors of the small remnant that returned to their homeland to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And yet, despite their continuing disobedience, God was still faithful to his promise to preserve them as a nation. And he used an ordinary Jewish girl named Esther and her wise cousin Mordecai to rescue the Jews from being annihilated. Now, the story begins in Esther chapter 1 by introducing us to a king named Ahasuerus, who was Cyrus's grandson. So there was Cyrus, and then there was his son Darius, and then there was his grandson uh, Ahasuerus. And and we find him here in chapter 1 banishing his queen, Vashti, because she refused his request to flaunt her beauty before the drunken partygoers at one of his many lavish feasts. And to, to make a, a point uh, and, and an example out of her, he, he banishes her. And then, he, so he's without a, king, a queen, and so he has to find a new queen. And after a two-year search for her replacement, Ahasuerus chose Esther as his queen. However, Ahasuerus' most trusted advisor, Haman, absolutely hated the Jews. He was an Amalekite, or from that uh, from that. Um, uh, tribe, and, uh, and so he hated, he had a bone to pick with the Jews, he had, a, had a, um, a, an old uh, score to settle with the Jews, 
And so he tricked Ahasuerus into ordering their massacre by the hands of the Persians. That, hey, there's going to be a day when we can all take up arms and we can destroy all the Jews in our land. And Ahasuerus had signed off on it. Well, when Mordecai found out about Haman's devious plan, he appealed to Esther that perhaps she had become the queen of Persia for the specific purpose of delivering her fellow Jews. And of course, the main verse or the theme verse of Esther is found in Esther chapter 4, verse 13. It says, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not, imag- do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. In other words, you're not even safe. Not even you are safe as the queen living in the palace from this extermination that Haman is, is plotting. Um, you will be caught up in it as well. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for what? Such a time as this. And so here Mordecai uh, encouraged her Uh, even ordered her, if you will, to approach the king and plead with him on behalf of her people, even though it it could cost her her life to enter the king's presence uninvited. You just didn't do that in those days. You could lose your head or uh, get banished like his previous queen. And yet she courageously agreed, and when Esther entered the king's presence, uh, he, he extended his scepter to her, which was a good thing. He, symbolizing that he did truly care for her and, and love her. And the fact that his wife would risk her life to come into his presence uninvited, he knew something major must be troubling her. And so he immediately promises to grant her whatever she requests up to half of his kingdom. And so rather than blurting out her request in front of everyone, Esther wisely invited Ahasuerus and Haman to a private banquet. And this is when the plot thickens. When they arrive at the banquet, the the king asked her again to reveal what was on her mind, and sensing the timing wasn't right, Esther invited them to a second banquet on the following day. Well, in the meantime, that evening, at the suggestion of his wife, Haman constructed a 75-foot spike on which to impale his nemesis, Mordecai. He was going to make an example out of Mordecai. And so while Haman was toiling through the night, building this, the gallows, if you will, um, Cyrus was trying, or excuse me, not Cyrus, uh, Hasuerus was trying to fall asleep, and he couldn't. He had a bad case of insomnia, and so he called for one of his servants to read the royal records. That's something that would put you to sleep, right? Uh, Start reading to me the royal records. Well, rather than making him sleepy, it woke him up to the fact that, that he had never properly honored Mordecai for uncovering an assassination plot against him years earlier, which had saved his life. And so the next morning, he asked Haman, who had come early to the palace, to seek permission to hang Mordecai. His whole purpose was he came early to, to get the king alone and to get his permission to hang Mordecai. And so uh, the king asked him, hey, what would you suggest be done for the man who I would want to honor? Well, Haman, in his pride, presumed that the king was referring to him, his most trusted counselor, and so Haman proposed this elaborate parade in which he would get to wear the king's robe and ride on the king's horse. 
Well, Ahasuerus thought it was a great idea, and so he ordered Haman to do everything he proposed to do, of all people, to Mordecai. And so Haman was forced to honor the very man that he wanted to kill. And when Haman returned home in mourning and told his wife and advisors what had happened, they all agreed that this was a bad omen and that it was only a matter of time before he would fall before this Jewish man. Well, as the story goes, when Esther finally revealed Haman's deceptive scheme to to her husband, he ordered immediately ordered for Haman to be impaled to death on the same stake that he had built to impale Mordecai, along with his ten sons. Furthermore, Ahasuerus went on to decree, a second decree, uh, to uh, over, override the first decree uh, that he had been forced, his hand had been forced to, to write regarding the, the original massacre. And so the second decree... Um, was that the Jews could defend themselves on the day of their scheduled massacre. And so he couldn't couldn't stop the decree. Once you had a decree, that was it. And that day, it it stood forever. And so what he said is, okay, I'm sorry I made this decree that you're going to get massacred and the Persians are going to come against you on this this specific date. But now I'm I'm decreeing that you can defend yourself. And they did. They took up arms and they ended up soundly defeating the Persians and destroyed their enemies. And to commemorate their deliverance from this threat of extermination, they instituted what's called the Feast of Purim, which is still celebrated by Jews to this day. Now, what is unique about the book of Esther is that God is never mentioned anywhere in the book. But you can clearly see his hand working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes for his people. And what I find even more intriguing about the book of Esther is that rather than using miraculous means to protect and provide for the Jews like he did so many other times in the Old Testament, God chose instead to use ordinary means to fulfill his sovereign will for the Jewish exiles who remained there in Persia. And in my opinion, that's what makes Esther one of the most practical and relevant books in the Old Testament for our lives today as God's people. I mean, we all love to read the Old Testament stories of the miraculous, right? The, 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 the burning bush and the, 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 the ten plagues and the parting of the sea and the angelic visitors and the food falling from heaven and birds falling out of the sky and uh, the earth swallowing people alive and uh, men surviving uh, in a fiery furnace and in lion's dens and handwriting on the walls and dreams and visions. We love those stories. But that's just not the world that we live in. We, we can't relate to that. Why? Because we live in the ordinary but mysterious world of Esther. One commentator said it this way, it's easy to see God in the miraculous. It's not easy to see him in the mundane. But that's where most of us live. This is all the more why we need to be sensitive, attentive to the subtle ways in which he works. No book will sharpen our spiritual senses more than Esther. And so through every twist and turn of this dramatic and and, and ironic tale, God's presence and his power are put put on display as he preserves his people through a series of events that, that an unbeliever might read this story and say, wow, those are some amazing coincidences. 
But we, are, we who are God's people and have the Spirit of God in us, we, we, we see these same events not as coincidences, but as the marvelous, uh, mysterious, mysterious workings of God's providence. And I think what is so helpful about this book is it just unveils to us the mysteries of God's providence, which are, which are typically hard for us to see when we're in the midst of a, of a crisis or challenge in our lives. And someone titled Esther, A Crisis Manual for God's People. I like that. It's very practical. A crisis manual for God's people. What do you do in crisis? When you face a crisis, we'll start reading the book of Esther, and you'll see a bunch of people in a crisis and how God delivered them. Now, we know it's next to impossible to interpret the the providence of God in the moment, right? Isaiah 55, verse 8, God's ways are what? Higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But we oftentimes can see God's providence after the fact, can't we? We're like, oh, now we see. Oh, now we get it. And so here we are given the opportunity to look back on the events that took place in the history of Israel and, and, and seeing what was impossible for them to see at the time. From the Jews' vantage point, God was nowhere to be seen. He, he chose to remain hidden in the shadows. He, he acted like he was invisible. And I think that's just interesting that, again, God's name is never mentioned in this book. And I think that's the point, is he was working in a mysterious behind-the-scenes way. But just because he chose to be invisible doesn't change the fact that he's invincible. Chuck Swindoll said it this way, the invisible God who may appear to be absent is the invincible God who is working out his plan. And so as you study the book of Esther, it really serves to sharpen your spiritual sight, if you will, or vision, so that you can more quickly and clearly recognize God's invisible hand at work in, in, in everything that happens to us. What's more, it helps us to, to rest in God's providence, to rejoice even in God's providence, especially when we find ourselves in, in what appear to be very desperate, hopeless situations, and we're tempted to ask, um, uh, hey God, where are you? <laughs> Or to think, where is God in all this? I don't see him. I don't feel him. I'm sure that's what the Jews in Persia were tempted to think when they were faced with Haman's holocaust. Where where is God in all this? But when it was all said and done, what Haman meant for evil, God meant for good. Genesis 50 Verse 20, and when it seemed like God was least present, he was most at work. That's applicable, isn't it? When you sense that, 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 that God is maybe least present, I, I just don't sense the presence of God right now in my life, guess what? It's typically when he's most at work in your life. And so I say that all because you may, right now, be overwhelmed by your present circumstances. There's ominous storm clouds over your head. You're facing a life-threatening illness or the death of a, 
of a spouse or a parent or a child, uh, you're experiencing some kind of untreatable pain where there doesn't seem to be any relief whatsoever. You're, you're carrying some unbearable emotional stress from work or facing some insurmountable challenge in your finances. Uh, you're at wit's end with your kids. You're, you're like pulling your hair out. What do we do with this child? Your, your marriage is maybe hanging on by a thread. Maybe you're out of work. You have no way to provide for your family. You're, you're battling unrelenting temptation. And if that describes you this morning, you need to know that the hand of God is behind everything that is happening to you right now. And all the drama, the the ironies, the crisis, the twists and turns of your life, the hurts and the pains and the trials and the the temptations and the diagnosis and the, the offenses that we face in life, we can be reassured by remembering that God is behind it all, working out his sovereign purposes for our lives. I know this is not a new concept for anyone here this morning, but if we're honest... We all have a tendency to be what's called a practical atheist. You ever heard that expression, a practical atheist? I know you're not an atheist here. You believe in God, and, and yet sometimes you can be a practical atheist in that you forget to take God into account when it comes to crisis in your life. We do it every day, don't we? I mean, something bad happens to us, and instead of immediately thinking, hey, God's in control, what do we do? We stress out, we freak out, we begin to worry, we get frustrated, we get stressed, and we we fail to see God's hand at work in in the things that are happening rather than reminding ourselves that, that, you know what, God must be up to something good. He must be up to something good. And there's no better reminder of that than, than the book of Esther. Why? Because Esther is really an unforgettable case study in the doctrine of divine providence. In other words, how God works everything for the good of his people. Um, Sadly, I think the the doctrine of of providence or divine providence has been all but forgotten in our day. And not just by non-Christians, but even Christians. I mean, non-Christians, I would say, even those who believe in God, wrongly assume that God is uninvolved in human affairs, that he, that he, he has a hands-off policy when it comes to the universe. In other words, uh, the, 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 the proverbial, God is the proverbial watchmaker in the sky who designed this intricate clock and he wound it up and, he, and then he stepped back and let it run itself. Or the other illustration you may have heard is that God sets the top spinning. He spins the top and he sets it out there and he steps back and he watches the, 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 the laws of nature and everything just kind of take effect and he just, he's just observing right now. As the famous song by Bette Midler goes that he's, God is watching us from a distance. Well, where's the hope in that? In times past... People often spoke of their lives being in the hands of providence as a way of expressing their their deep-rooted conviction that everything that came to pass in their lives was ordained by God. How many of you know the story of Providence, Rhode Island? 
It's a simple story. It's, a, it's really fascinating. There was an English Puritan named Roger Williams who, who was, uh, came to the Massachusetts Bay Colony and was really wanting to defend the separation between church and state, and, and, and he was uh, dubbed a heretic and banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony and basically kicked out and told to go somewhere else. We well, went down to the, the, the area we know today as Providence, Rhode Island, and he founded a new colony, and he named it Providence. Because he was convinced that what had happened to him, even this negative, bad situation, this crisis where he was um, basically um, falsely accused and then banished from his community, uh, he saw that as as all of God's providence. And so he, he named the new colony Providence. Now, rarely do do we refer to God's providence today. I mean, it's, it's almost, a, in some ways, an old-fashioned word, which sounds kind of strange to modern ears. I mean, we've grown more accustomed to hearing and using words like, wow, co- what a coincidence. Well, that was a fluke. Or luck. Boy, that guy was lucky. He's lucky to be alive. Or the word chance, well, that was a, that was a chance encounter or some random act of violence, we, we use this word, or a, a fluke accident. This is more the, the lingo that you hear, not just in the world, but even in the church today. And, and we need to fess up to the fact that in many ways, we as Christians have adopted not just the language of the world, but the thinking of the world when it comes to God's providence. R.C. Sproul has written a very helpful book called The Invisible Hand, and it's all about God's providence. And this is what he said, quote, the word providence has all but disappeared from the vocabulary of the contemporary Christian. It is becoming obsolete and archaic. This word that was once commonplace, indeed central to Christian expression, now seems doomed to the ash heap of useless verbiage. But the word providence, he says, is too rich and too heavily loaded with crucial theological nuance to allow it to pass from our language without a fight. It is a theological term of the highest import, a term rooted in the ageless content of Scripture. And so this sermon is an attempt to fight for the usage of the language providence. They would think this way, we would talk this way, because it is a very biblical concept. Now, if you were to look for the word providence in the scriptures, you wouldn't find it. It's not there. It's like the word Trinity. Anybody ever see the word Trinity in the Bible? No, it's just not there. Well, what is the word Trinity? What is the word providence? Well, it's a word. They're words that were coined by the church to summarize what the Bible teaches about something. And so in the case of the word providence, it was a word that was coined by the early church to summarize what the Bible teaches about how God governs and preserves and directs and sustains everything in the universe, and it's intricately involved, and how God is intricately involved in the affairs of nations and the affairs of individuals. But let's just look at a few verses, and, and, and you can follow along with me if you'd like, or maybe just write these down, but let me just read for you some examples 
of what the scripture teaches about this concept, this theological concept of providence. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 104, verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Verse 33 of that same chapter, Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Chapter 19, verse 21. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Chapter 20, verse 24. Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? And then you move into uh, the prophets, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 6. He's talking about how God will cause men that they, they, they may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Lamentations, uh, chapter 3, verse 38. Very insightful thought here. Uh, from the prophet Jeremiah, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 38. Is is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? God's not bashful about taking responsibility for evil, right? That's the age-old question. Well, what about evil? Where did evil come from? We can't can't put that at the feet of God. God, God's not to blame for that. Well, according to the scriptures, it says that both good and ill go forth come forth from God. How, how does that make sense? Well, that's the point. <laughs> it, it, it's hard to make sense in our finite minds. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then we move into the New Testament, Matthew chapter uh, 4, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 45. It says uh, that, that God, the Father in heaven, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Chapter 6, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? And I love chapter, Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Can you imagine how hard that would be to, to keep track of the number of the hairs on your head? Um, that's a constantly changing number, isn't it? But, but God's got it. He knows at any given point how many hairs you have on your head this morning, right at this second. Some of you have less than others, right? But uh, the point is, he knows. Um, Acts chapter 17, love what Paul said to the men on Mars Hill, talking about the character of God, schooling them and who the true God was. 
Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And then maybe Colossians 1, 16 and 17 would be a good good one to look at. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then maybe we could just conclude with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 talking about Christ, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and who upholds all things by the word of his power. Why did I read you all those verses? Well, just to show you that the biblical evidence is overwhelming that God created and controls everything in the universe. People, animals, Nations, weather patterns, hurricanes, tsunamis, tornadoes, earthquakes, random and chance events, uh, every aspect of our lives, even evil itself, God is in charge of. And we see God's providence supremely in our redemption. That we know that before the foundation of the world, God chose those out of, out of all the hell-deserving sinners who would be saved, and he sent his son to die in their place to rescue and redeem them. And the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which was the most evil deed in all of history, was ordained by God's providence. We, we know that because Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 23... He says, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of God this man and put him to death. He goes on in Acts 4, I guess this is the the apostles' conviction as they were praying in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, for truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now, by the way, Jesus, or, or God, did not force their hand. God did not force the hand of Pilate or the hand of the Jews. They, they, they acted according to their own will. They didn't act against their will. And again, in God's providence, he brought about his plan through their willing choices for which they are held responsible for. Again, you're like, ah, that's kind of making my head hurt a little bit, Ken. How does that all fit together. Well, I appreciate what Wayne Grudem writes in his uh, helpful little Bible doctrine book. He says this, quote, the number of passages that affirm this providential control of God is so considerable, it seems better to simply affirm that God causes all things that happen, but that he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices, choices that have real and eternal results and for which we are held accountable. In other words, Grudem's keeping us out of the ditch of fatalism, where we think, hey, if God is just uh, 
ordained everything and he controls everything. Well, I'm just a puppet on a string and it really doesn't matter what I do. My decisions don't matter because God will override them. No, no, that's fatalism. And, 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 and we have just as many verses about man's responsibility in the scriptures as we do about God's sovereignty or providence in the scriptures. And so these must be held with attention in our minds. And that's how he ends this quote. Grudem says, exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and significant choices, scripture simply does not explain to us. And we've just got to be content to wait to get to heaven to figure that out. And for all that to make sense. But let's look at this word providence just for a second. It's an interesting word. It comes from two Latin root words, pro and video. You probably got the video one down, right? But the pro means before or in front of, and video means to see. So basically what the word providence means is to see beforehand. Now, don't think that that means that the word providence is just a synonym for foreknowledge or, or predestination. It's more than that. It's, in fact, when you look at the definitions uh, throughout church history and even in theology books today, that, that, that the, the word providence has more to do with God's provision and protection and preservation of his people. Derek Thomas has written a great little, little resource here. I think we have him in the resource center uh, if you want to grab a copy afterwards, it's called What is Providence? And this is what he says. He says, Providence suggests God's care of the world, both his supervision of all events and circumstances and his provision for all our needs. So we're talking about supervision and provision all at the same time. It's like two sides of the same coin. He said, It is more than God's ability to see into the future. It is his active and determined care to ensure that what he has promised for us actually, excuse me, actually does come to pass. John Murray, in a little book called Behind a Frowning Providence, says this. He said, Providence is that marvelous working of God by which all the events and happenings in this universe, uh, or in in his universe, accomplish the purpose that he has in his mind. Let me read for you a couple definitions of God's providence found in, in some of the old uh, confessions of the faith. This is the, the, de- the definition of God's providence in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I know the languages are archaic, but I think it's helpful. Just follow as best you can here. This is how the Westminster divines defined uh, providence. God, the great creator of all things doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So that definition is helpful because if you're sitting here going, man, this, this, this whole thing about providence is confusing me or it's frustrating me. I can't comprehend this concept. Well, you're missing the point because providence is not, God did not ordain providence, if you will, or this doctrine is not to confuse you or to frustrate you, um, but to cause you to worship, to cause you to praise God's glory, his wisdom, His justice, his goodness, his mercy. This is the Heidelberg Catechism. This is the definition that they include. The almighty and ever-present power of God 
This is providence, the almighty and ever-present power of God, whereby he still upholds, as it were, by his own hand, heaven and earth, together with all creatures, and rules in such a way that leaves and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and unfruitful years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and everything else come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now again, God's providence is is simply the logical and practical outflow of his sovereignty. If you wanted a very simple definition of providence, it's God's sovereignty in action. That's all God's providence is. It's his sovereignty in action. God has sovereignly planned out everything that will happen in the universe from beginning to end, and he works out that sovereign plan for the world and our lives through the means of providence. So God not only sovereignly ordained all that would take place in the world and in our lives, he is actively orchestrating every detail to accomplish his will for the world and for our lives through his providence. So the providence is not the sovereign ordaining so much as it's the active orchestrating of his plan, the fleshing out of his plan, if you will. And so when it comes to managing the universe and and managing our lives, God has a hands-on approach albeit his hand is typically hidden. God is not just concerned with the big picture. He's also interested and involved in the smallest details of our lives. We foolishly repeat that, that maxim, the devil's in the details. Well, I think that more applies to God. That's the reality is God is in the details, not the devil. God is in the details. He, he's a cosmic micromanager. God loves the details. Again, Derek Thomas writes, it's in the details that we discern his hand of providence, ruling, directing, providing, sustaining, preventing, surprising even. What may look catastrophic from one point of view will appear from another angle to be the outworking of a a plan in which God is in full control. As I mentioned earlier, it's, it's typically hard to see God's hands of providence when you were in the midst of a, a, a catastrophe or a crisis, and um, sometimes the ways of God can't be discerned. We're like, Lord, what, what are you up to here? I don't, I don't get you. This, this doesn't make any sense to me. But then afterwards, it becomes clear, doesn't it? That's what the Puritan John Flavel meant by the mystery of providence. He wrote a book called The Mystery of Providence. In other words, that that God's providence is more mysterious than it is miraculous. You know what we said about the book of Esther? Why it's really something that we can really latch on to and go, hey, I get that. I can appreciate that. Why? Because we don't see the miraculous going on. We see the mysterious going on. And that's more where we live. And John Flavel writes, he says, sometimes providences like Hebrew letters must be read backward. I think you know that when you're reading a Hebrew Bible, you, you read from right to left, instead of left to right. You read it backwards. And so he says, that's, that's like providence. It's, sometimes you, you can't read it forward. You've got to read it backwards. And so the lesson that we, we learn here from the story of Esther is, is that when it seems like God is least active in human affairs, he, he is most at work. And when he appears most hidden, he's actually most present. 
Probably the other top illustration in the Bible of, of, of God's providence would have to be what? The story of who? Old Testament story, Joseph. I mean, Joseph could never have fathomed in a million years what, what God was, was up to, what he was doing, and, until it all came into focus that, 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 that why, why did he get, why was he hated by his brothers? Why did he get thrown down into a pit and left to die? Why was he sold off to slavery? Why was he falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown in jail and then forgotten by the, the cupbearer and the baker? And, and what, what was all that about? I don't get it. You know he must have been wrestling with, with God's providence, right, in, in, in jail, in prison, in Egypt. But then it all came into focus at the end that God wanted an heir of the covenant people to be in the most powerful strategic position in Egypt at the time when famine engulfed Canaan. And so basically what God was doing was ensuring the survival of his people, it was all part of God's plan. And I love how, how it dawns on Joseph when his brothers show up to find some relief and to get some food for their starving family. And, uh, and, and when, when Joseph recognized them as his brothers, it says he ran out of the room and wept. He was so moved with emotion to see these, these brothers that had sold him off into slavery. And there wasn't, there wasn't anger. There wasn't bitterness. It's like, ooh, now I'm going to get back at you guys. There was none of that. Why? In Genesis chapter 45, it shows how Joseph dealt kindly with his brothers. And this is why. In verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there was still five years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it is not you who sent me here. How many times are you going to tell his brothers this, right? You didn't do this, God did. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I and mean, what an amazing example, illustration of God's sweet providence. Who would have ever know that horrific situation scenario of these brothers sending their, their, their youngest off to, to slavery, and then it was all part of God's plan to save his people. Same thing we see in the book of Esther. J.A. Packer has a helpful little theology, little concise theology book where he kind of makes some really good summary statements. And this is what he says about the doctrine of providence. He said, the doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good. I mean, what an encouragement. What, what a comfort to know that you are not at the mercy of some impersonal, arbitrary forces or some uncontrolled, random events. There is no such thing as destiny or fate or coincidence or luck or even accident. 
I mean, if you want to get very literal, I'm not suggesting you do, you could say the next time you get in the fender bender, that wasn't a car accident, it was a car providence. It's all part of God's plan in some way, shape, or form. In fact, you think about the word chance. I mean, chance doesn't even exist. Nothing happens by chance. R.C. Sproul wrote a great book years ago called Not By Chance. Or, or, or maybe no, no chance. I can't remember what it was. Something like that. Not by chance. Uh, and his point was, logically, there, there cannot be this concept of, of chance. It doesn't even exist. God has a predetermined plan from eternity past where he has ordained everything that has happened and will happen. And that means that he is never surprised or caught off guard by unexpected developments there's no such thing as unforeseen circumstances to God. He's, he's seen the end from the beginning. And so therefore, we can rest assured that no matter what is going on in the world at the time or in our lives at the time, that we are safe within his hands of providence. And he is daily ordering the events of our world and the events of our lives in a way that will bring him the greatest glory and honor and accomplish the greatest good in our lives. I want to close with another story that I think is one of the most marvelous and mysterious instances of God's providence um, that I've ever read about. It was in the life of a man named William Cowper. And Cowper, you may have, the name may, may be familiar to you. He was an 18th century English poet, hymn writer, who throughout his lifetime experienced these seasons of severe doubt and, and depression. He attempted suicide three times, which led to an 18-month stay in an insane asylum. Dur during his time of recovery there in the asylum, he began reading the Bible, and at the age of 33, he was gloriously converted to Christ. And yet even though he was born again, he still was haunted by doubt and depression. Specifically, this, this overwhelming, reoccurring fear that God had forsaken him and doomed him to hell. And he couldn't get past that fear. And so one night he decided to commit suicide by drowning himself. And so he called a cab and told the driver to take him to the Thames River there in London. And yet the, the fog was so thick that night that the, the, the cabbie couldn't find the river. And after driving around lost for a while, it kind of in circles, looking for the river, he finally stopped and just let Cowper out. Like, I don't know where we're going. Just here, get out. Well, to Cowper's surprise, he found himself back on his own doorstep in the midst of this thick fog. And he concluded that night that God had providentially sent the fog to keep him from killing himself and that even in our blackest moments, God watches over us and preserves our lives. We don't know for sure, but it may have been this incident that inspired Cowper to pen what is the most, I think, the most profound lyrics ever written in the English language on the subject of God's providence. It's, it was the last hymn that he ever wrote. We know it today as God moves in a mysterious way. You familiar with this hymn? Let me just read for you the lyrics. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, 
He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. I love this line. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be its flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. I think it's a, a, a beautiful summary of the marvelous, mysterious doctrine of providence. And I don't know of many other doctrines that are more comforting and more reassuring to us as Christians than providence. It is a glorious truth that we can rest in that we can trust in. And ultimately, at the end of the day, when you understand the doctrine of providence, you're compelled, you're called to trust God. That's the bottom line. Blind unbelief is sure to err. What's the opposite of unbelief? It's belief. It's faith. And so we need to, we need to trust in God and specifically in His providence over our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this sweet doctrine that has been almost forgotten by even your people in in this world that we live today. And it seems like chance and luck and coincidences and all those other things are, are, are in vogue today. And that's how we, we talk, and, and that's sometimes how we even think and live, like practical atheists that, that fail to see your providence in, in the things that happen to us in our lives. And Lord, we confess that, that, that we don't want to, uh, we don't mean to try to interpret your providence ahead of time or in the midst of the, the trial or the temptation or the, the crisis that we're in, but Lord, we thank you for the, the, the many times, as, as, as we, if we were to think about, as we've looked back on certain things that you've brought us through in life, um, it, it's just truly been amazing to see how you were in the details of it all. And Lord, even as we, uh, as a church, are faced with a, a, a crisis, if you will, where uh, we're sending out uh, another pastor and, and uh, we really need two more pastors and, and, and we're concerned about what that's going to look like and how that's all going to work and And uh, we just thank you that you are in all the details. Um, You always have been, you always will be. And we we can rest in you, we can trust in you, that you're up to something good. And we just need to wait upon you and not be fearful or anxious um, or troubled in our hearts or frightened, where we can just uh, simply trust you. And I pray for those who are dealing with personal crises, Lord, I know that there's many um, different issues and problems, both physically and mentally and financially and spiritually represented in this body this morning, and I pray that your spirit would, uh, would take this message and apply it, Lord, to all of our hearts, 
Lord, that we would walk away today comforted, um, encouraged, reassured, Lord, that you are, that you have everything under control, that we are in your hands. Even though we can't see them, even though we might not even feel them, Lord, that, that you're there and we can trust you. And so we thank you for truth for the road, the truth that we can take with us now to help us live life for your honor and glory this week. I pray that you'd help us to apply it well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.